You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today, I'm quite thrilled to be talking to a quite brilliant stand-up comedian who is disgustingly young, talented, inventive, original, unique, all of those things. I first saw Aaron Chen at the Melbourne Comedy Festival in, I think, something approaching 2015 or 16. And it was one of those shows where I just felt, I think I described it to people at the time. And then I think this was the first time I've used this description, which I may have gone on to use in other, uh, with reference to other things. Uh, that I just sat there feeling my brain melt out of my head. It was so good, so inventive, so original, and so unlike anything I'd seen before. Um, I, and uh, I think I, I may have been his debut show. I think we talk about this in the episode a little bit. Um, I just thought it was absolutely fantastic. I was completely blown away. And so it was an enormous pleasure to discover sometime over the last 18 months um, that uh, Aaron is not only this sort of weird, quirky guy I remember <laughs> from uh, from the Melbourne Comedy Festival, um, but he's also extremely successful now and has done a, a solo project on Adult Swim that you can find on YouTube. The, the link is in the show notes to this episode. Um, and also has just got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, uh, of downloads on his hundreds of thousands, I should say. Not hundreds of downloads. That would be equally impressive too. It's not a signifier of quality. Um, but, you know, he's, it's, he's, he's really going off. Like there was me thinking he was this crazy alt guy I'd seen once. And uh, that was the case. But it is also simultaneously the case that he's doing very well for himself indeed, as well he should be. No extras from this episode, but remember you can get ad-free episodes plus all the extras from the episodes that have them at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. You join the Insiders Club for only £2 a month, uh, minimum donation or your local currency equivalent. And you can uh, you can get access to everything, or you can pay more than that, more than the minimum two pound if you fancy, if you really love the show, want to support it, and have been listening for ages and thinking, Do you know, I probably should support it. Then why not uh, confuse me by doing it now on an episode where there are no extras? How about that? Right, I will post Amber at you briefly at the end and set up what's happening next week as well, and as and also maybe mention a couple of little projects. But nonetheless, here is Aaron Chen. Welcome to the show. It's a joy to talk to you. Um, the first thing I want to talk to you about is the first time I encountered you, which was at Melbourne. And I don't remember the year, but it was the year when you were doing the show with the karaoke element to it. Like, do you remember right. the, the karaoke audience reactions? Yes, I remember that. That was ages ago, t- 2015, I want to say, or 16, something like 15 that. 15 or and, 16. Yeah. yeah. That and, is a uh, world away. 
Yeah, it was so long ago. I didn't even know about pandemics or anything. And I um, I guess I was just starting to do comedy and try to experiment with it and stuff. So I had a bit of comedy where I had like the karaoke lyrics of the bit I was doing, but it had crowd work in it and had pauses and stuff for ad-libbing and stuff. So yeah. we, the audience, had to follow... Like, we were doing... We Were we doing karaoke or were you doing karaoke? Like, we were like... We had to do a laugh when it told us to laugh? Or was it that you were doing karaoke? I can't remember which way around it was. I was doing all my intro bits in karaoke. So it said, like, hey, hello, how's it going? And then there was a big pause, and it said pause, and then I said, yeah, sick. And, yeah, yeah, um, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. So it was, like, really laboured, all the... All the heckler responses were karaoke for the first two minutes or something like that that show just unpeeled my mind i loved that show so much i raved about it i think i saw it more than once my memory of it isn't great and part of what i want to do with you is just reminisce about all the insane (laughs) shit that was in that show because that for me was such i think i found a note that i made at the time that said oh i think aaron's the australian matt ewins now i don't know if matt ewins ever come to uh, I don't know if you've ever seen him. I don't know if he's ever come to Australia, but he does incredible, like very tech heavy, um, yeah. like video editing and he erases the ball in a game of football and stuff and just loads mm-hmm. of like things that to him are really easy. Um, and so he kind of I, uses... I think I saw him in Edinburgh. Oh yeah, for sure. In 2019 yeah. or something. Yeah. 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 So very I had funny. a similar experience of just going yeah. like everything in your show was a surprise. Everything in it was inventive everything in it was just a totally different way of making people laugh can you remember some of the other and it was as you say it was like it was a very experimental show like i felt like it wasn't it's not like a polished thing <laughs> there was some you know like there we go yeah. this is the the masterwork so much as just everything in it being just mental in a way that really tickled my brain can you can you talk a little bit about the creation of that show and some of the other elements in it. Like, what were your favourite things to do in that show? Mm-hmm. That's really uh, nice of you. Um, I did the show and wrote the show with my then um, housemate and good friend, a guy called Jonathan Lowe, and um, we just wanted to really, like, just experiment with the form of how you could do a one-hour show. I think we will watching a lot of um, Bo Burnham at the time and thinking how can we make like a lo-fi version of this, like a version of Bo Burnham which you could do for $50 and something like that. Um, <laughs> I um, I think he he came up with this, uh, like we, we came up with different ideas of how we could get him to do more jokes in it and he was like a sidekick who was on the laptop and doing DJ stuff, but really um, even more low energy than I was. So, like, to have a low energy guy doing the show and then to have a lower energy sidekick, I think <laughs> that was really funny to us. Um, so he would be, like, on the internet surfing the web as people came into the um, the room. And so you could see on screen what he was doing online and checking Facebook and replying to people and stuff. I thought that was really and he funny. Was- and- and he wasn't a he wasn't a, was he a performer or was he just literally your housemate? Was he was he a comic himself? He was both. Yeah, he did comedy. Okay, right, right. He was yeah. He's very funny. Um, and we made like uh, 
web series and stuff together so he's a great writer okay and stuff. i think yeah. i think at the time probably his energy was so low and it was so kind of deliberately inept <laughs> that it felt like i think this guy has just wandered in <laughs> Do you know what yeah. I mean? yeah for sure and i think you can get away with that kind of thing when you're doing a 30 seater yeah and you like so okay so we might come back to that in a minute but i having kind of clocked you at the time and thought oh, i love what aaron does i've every so often i've seen you kind of pop up on youtube and i've kind of watched your stand-up develop in like little stabs you know a gala set here and something else there and then because I, I love your joke writing we'll get into all of that and i love your your the incredibly kind of like it's i don't know quite how you'd how you'd uh characterize your energy on stage it's not that it's low status it's not that it's awkward but like what is i mean is it just is it low energy how do you think of it the kind of the performance style that you have i don't know i yeah it's it's hard for me to say i think i started doing one-liners so like i like writing jokes like that but the persona is just came about because i was watching kind of awkward stuff and that was where it started but it maybe turned into a little bit of something else like um yeah i'm not sure what i uh, i think it is i think it's a very type of australian like deferring of i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah it's... yeah yeah def deferent is kind of yeah. is kind of right like the fact that you like your opening line, whenever I've seen you, whatever clips is just go, how, how you get like very low energy, how you going? And then whatever reaction they have, you go, yeah, sick. And it <laughs> yeah. always gets a laugh. Like, when did you when did you come across that as like a means of because it gets a laugh and it totally sets out your character as someone <laughs> yeah. who's sort of it's not that you don't care or, or that you're I don't even know. I can't. It, it does. One of the things that's so exciting for me is I find it so difficult to describe it. Obviously, in the in the preamble to this episode, I'll tell everyone to at least watch it so that they know. <laughs> yeah. Just watch a clip so they know what we're talking about. Right. But like, what? When did you come across that? And what is it do you, that you think is funny about that? What? Like, why is that such an unbreakable opening line that sets you up so well? Um, saying yes, yeah, I I think it must have been something that I stumbled upon accidentally. Like, just started saying it, and people maybe. Like, maybe I got into the habit of saying it and then one time I said it when the response wasn't that big and it's just funny because it's a bit automatic and it feels like a bit sarcastic or like, um, I don't know, um, like robotic and that's funny to me, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's because it's not, it's, it sets you up as someone who is sort of confident despite not playing the game as we're expecting it to be played <laughs> yeah I, I think that's a big thing like at, there was one point where I was like um walking into any gig like triumphantly with my arms in the air and then speaking really low energy and I think that shift of energy is um a big technique that I like to use of um being funny is to shift the energy from high energy to low status like really quick or like something like that because when you, I've seen like, uh, you did Raw when you were like 17. Yes. And I think, I mean, I can't remember. I've seen two clips and both of them, I felt like they were sort of portrayed as if they were your first gig or I've misunderstood or something. I'm not, I don't know which one came first, but one of them you were doing ultra awkward. Mm -hmm. Like you were really like kind of leaning into like more awkward than anyone I've seen. More awkward than a real awkward person. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It was really put on. I was... When I started, um, my first ever gigs, it was all just one-liners. I don't know if there'd be any type of persona. 
but then in that first year of stand-up, um, I'd been around the traps and I had um, fallen in cahoots kind of with um, a lot of really alternative Sydney comedians and the Sydney comedy scene, like the alternative little portion of it was super alternative. There was this club called um, Fuck Club run by a guy called Nick Sun and uh, Ben yeah, Elwood. Know Nick, yeah. You know Nick yeah. Sun. And so yeah, like, yeah, yeah. their whole thing was encouraging you to be weirder and not ha- be a hack was their whole thing. So they would like heckle from the back of this room that they ran and say you're being a hack or whatever and so that really Ah. forced you to find new avenues so I was like what is the experimental edge or boundary that I can push in stand-up so by that gig that I did class clowns that was like a high school competition I just had this whole persona of being like ultra awkward um in the first year. So like, I would have thought that was a long period of time that I was doing that, but it was probably like four or five gigs or something, but I grew out of that. I think. So you, how old would you have been at that time? Uh, I would have been like 16. Fucking hell. It's it's so peculiar to hear. I mean, you must get that that's unusual, right? To be 16, not just to be 16 doing comedy. There's a few people doing that these days, but to be 16 and going, and, and you know, doing experimental stuff at Fuck Club in the meantime. <laughs> yeah. And, like, to be trying to rid yourself of hackery at 16. Yeah. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, it's... I think it's crazy. Um, it's so lucky that I fell in with that group of people because it, like... I think it pushes you to be better in a way or, like, different for sure. Like, and if that's where you start, like knowing that you don't want to do well-trodden stuff or, like, I think at that time what was of concern was, like, kind of... There was a lot of... um, Like, a lot of Asian comedy or whatever would be just about doing stereotypes and whatnot, and that was, like, at least felt lazy to some people, so I tried hard to avoid that, and then that's where a lot of... um, different ideas and creativity stem from was the restriction of what you kind of could and couldn't do based on like what was hack or not hack and do you think do you because you mentioned the sort of the asian the stereotype of the asian comic Mm -hmm. doing stuff about race yeah so was that was it almost like um a more seductive kind of hack like that's you know there are relatively few asian comics so you could get away with that if you wanted yeah, I reckon so, but I don't know. I, maybe it was appealing for a moment because, like, I remember I grew up, like, and I really was loving, like, Russell Peters and stuff in high school, and, like, I just found that so funny, and then I kind of started watching more stuff like Mitch Hedberg and uh, one-liner comedians, and I thought that was the best thing in the world, and then I... I I think just the people around me would all uh, were pushing to do like, what's the new thing that I can do? Like what's the, and Mm. I think that was the most appealing thing to me after a certain while around those people. I think always people pleasing is my thing. And um, the people so happen to be alternative comics. 
Uh, that's interesting. That's interesting because you yeah. don't strike me at all as a people pleaser because <laughs> your, your stuff is so kind of, or has its roots in such a kind of yeah. unafraid experimental dynamic. But that's so hilarious that as a teenager, the people you were trying to please <laughs> were Nick's son. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. who, like as, as far away from a mainstream comic as you can get. Yeah. He's like so, an ayahuasca shaman now. Is he really? Yeah. I felt like he was going that way, but I have not. I've not had any contact. I mean, I, we don't know each other. Know each other like I've seen his work. I know who he is. But <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, I felt like he was going that way. I felt he did a show that kind of referred to it, and as soon as anyone refers to it, you're like, I wonder when that's going to end up. <laughs> <laughs> Does he still do comedy? Uh, maybe a couple of years ago was the last time I saw him, but he's okay. So something I noticed watching your your stand up sets is that they are bananas. The numbers of people who've watched them are just colossal. Like if you look at a you know a Melbourne Gala set, you will see that you know say like, oh this person that's a good set that you know twenty thousand people watch that it's really funny. And yours are all in like three to five hundred thousand. When did that start happening? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like uh, maybe with my first Gala set that happened. Um... I did a joke about um, meeting an older Asian lady on a plane. And I think, funnily enough, talking about Asian stereotypes and stuff like that, but uh, this this thing got shared in a lot of different Asian groups and stuff like that and blew up on Facebook. It blew up in uh. um, China as well. Like, uh, there's, like, on a Chinese social uh, media app called, like, Weixing, um, like someone put subtitles to the video and that was the first time my dad like watched and understood my comedy was through <laughs> this thing going viral in China. So I think that's the thing that made my stand-up popular. That was the first time. And did you have a, like, did you know at the time that those, that all of the views were going up because China had got behind you because you were viral in China? Like what's the relationship between... <laughs> your kind of like your your Melbourne or your Sydney ticket sales and the fact that one of your videos will get half a million likes. Does that translate yeah. into people coming to see you or is it half a million people in China like you? Well, it had a lot of views here through the Chinese diaspora here. So like, or, or um, in the Western speaking world, because people in China, they can't use YouTube really unless they have a VPN. But um, the people on YouTube here, uh, they... Yeah, I guess, like, it kind of... People started to know me from my stand-up and then the the year after that clip went viral was crazy for ticket sales. It was really lucky. It just happens like that. Lightning sometimes just strikes, hey. And is there is there a tension between you starting to get successful in a kind of mainstream way and you thinking... What will Nick Sun think of me? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You're kind of I don't mean to make it all about Nick, but you know, you're the yeah. fact that you're alternative is there like because I think I su- I suppose I guess that people who are really alternative, you think that they kind of like do you want to do you want to have mainstream appeal? Do you want to play big venues? Like what, you know, there's mm. so few people who are genuinely alternative make it to a mainstream audience. Yeah. Well, I'm just taking it how it goes and like it's all it's all like the cream on top to be honest like it's so lucky um but uh as i think there is when writing always the thing of 
I just got to write for what I think is cool, not what, or or funny, and not what um anyone else kind of like, not what the audience reckons, or even like other comics. I think that that was a massive trap that I fell into performing for a few years was um like playing to the back of the room, like playing to comics only, and then like I would bomb and. Uh, do bomb lines and blame the crowd and stuff and that would get like such a rise out of comics but it would be bad comedy i think um so i think there's always like balance and tension and whatever so in terms of writing let's just come back to the writing for a second what was the first joke that you remember writing because your one-liners are just spectacular and i'm horrified to learn that you were writing them in your teens do you (laughs) mean (laughs) they're such good they're such good like you say, you can you can feel a kind of Mitch, Mitch Hedberg influence in there because some of them some of them are like the aloe vera joke. You mm-hmm. kind of like that's a joke joke. I get it, you know, and it's it's told mm-hmm. with a lot of personality. And others of them, you sort of feel like this is just funny because it's you. And I think that's what Mitch Hedberg had. He had one-liners that don't really work if you write them down <laughs> because they work. They work because they're his personality saying them. So yeah. what was the talk? Talk to me about writing and how you started writing and. Like, what, do you, do you remember your your first successful joke or your first unsuccessful joke? Yeah, so I think I started when I started comedy. I was watching all one liner guys, so I was watching like Mitch Hedberg and Jimmy Carr, and like trying to work out what was like the joke. And I read this book. I think it was like Judy Carter's Comedy Bible or whatever, and then that okay. like introduced me to like the joke formula of like line A, line B, like a setup and then a punchline that subverts something in the setup. So I learnt the formula really quick and I think the first jokes that I ever wrote, um, one of them I would still use to this day if I was really in trouble on stage. And it's um, that uh, I got an Amnesty International mug at home and on the side of the mug it says, by having this mug you're supporting world peace feel good i felt neutral because i stole it and i can still pull that out um it yeah. was just dumb and quick like i feel like one line is a kind of like good self-defense mechanism because like you know they've worked before and if they bomb then it's just impossible <laughs> yeah, yeah and so with that one Mm-hmm. Was that inspired by actually having or actually stealing or seeing an Amnesty International mug? Or was it literally you just kind of playing with the soup of ideas and coming up with something that, that had that, that work? I, I, no, I definitely never had an Amnesty International mug. Maybe I saw one, but I feel like all the best material that I write is like inspiration where you can't really... Like, I, I'm never sitting down and writing and out of nothing will force myself to write a joke, but I will, in my day-to-day life, something will pop into my mind and it will work. And I think the hard work was to learn that formula and to write, like, hundreds of different really bad jokes in that formula. And then when I come up with an idea, it would just fit into that joke structure. I okay, know so the what- maths behind it. Yeah, right. So you, so you, um, so the work was kind of, you said the sitting down writing work isn't creating material. It was writing, it was loads and loads of bad attempts at grappling with the, the maths of it. Right, yeah. And some, maybe one. Well, at least in... there was some work, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, there was some work. <laughs> 
So what kind of what just to be nerdy and technical about it about the maths of it? What mm-hmm. kind of structures do you particularly enjoy using or find yourself using frequently and what sorts of things are less useful for you? I remember an exercise which like I would use over and over again was like if you think of any word and then doing a word association for that five times and then you just look at those five or six words and then you try to form some link between one of the words. So it's like enough steps away from the original idea that you could maybe come up with a subversion. If that, uh, gotcha. That okay. Sense. Yeah. I think I know the one. So you do the idea, loads yeah. of things coming out from the idea, something coming out from them. And then you try and get back to the original idea and kind of erase the step. In the yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Yeah. And um, are, are, sorry, go on. No. And I think maybe through that, like I do that, write like a thousand lines from that and maybe there'd be like two or three jokes that I could use from that or like a hundred and two or three good jokes in that. So it's like... Did you just say a thousand and then walk it back to a hundred or do you think at any point yeah, you wrote a thousand, thousand jokes? Yeah, because I don't think I've written a thousand in my life. Like I'm not that hard. Like that makes okay. me sound more hardworking. <laughs> <laughs> but enough, enough that you're bored and yeah. like, you know, just kind of grinding away at it. Yeah. And I suppose, I wonder if part of that comes from just, like, what was your feeling at the time? Did you feel like, I'm young, this is the work at the coalface, this is the, you know, I've got to do, I've got to teach myself how to learn it. Yeah, do you know what I mean? I, because that's that's the real, um, like, the energy required to do that probably diminishes as you get older. Right, yeah. I, I think I just loved it. I think it wasn't like, it never felt like a chore, like... I'm really bad with sticking with things. Like I played like five different instruments for a year, but I think the feedback loop of comedy was enough that it was like I was doing five-minute spots around town and then I really wanted to do 10-minute spots. So that push is like feels so huge to write five more minutes of material and I just wanted to be doing that. So after that experimental year, what... what, what... That show that I saw in 2015 or 16, like how long had you been going before that, before starting to kind of really take it all to pieces? I started in 2012 and I probably would have met like Nick and Ben Elwood and stuff in 2013. So 2013 to 2016, that's, that is kind of how that charted or 2012 to 2016. Okay. So were you doing, so the one-liners, did that, like all of that work on the one-liners, did that predate that show that I saw? Or was that something that you, you yeah. did experimenting and then you solidified the one-liners? That's when I first ever did my, um, like, that kind of class clowns thing in 2011. I was writing one-liners right before that and for that first whole year. I reckon I would have been doing one-liners up until 2016 type thing. But then just by having to do an hour-long show, you kind of have to write longer material, I feel like doing the festival show with all one-liners is kind of crazy i guess like tim vine does it but not yeah. many other people Mil- milton jones maybe oh he's great isn't he he's so good um this is aaron and he is should i be saying aaron or aaron it's hard to tell it's i, I don't know and i didn't check and I don't think he said his name. But there we are. It's either Aaron or Aaron. And probably there will be some sort of pronunciation thing from Australia to the UK that confuses me further. Mr. Chen here. 
absolutely fantastic comic. I really, really urge you. It was very something that was very satisfying in the Comedians Comedian Podcast Facebook group, which you may join, and you must answer coded questions. And the main thing is that you try. You don't have to get the answers right, but you have to make an effort. Otherwise, you don't get in. And I mentioned Aaron was coming on the show, and a couple of people uh, were excited about it and said so. And then in the thread, someone said, oh, who's this guy? And I kind of, I like posted a clip. And then loads of people checked out his clips and then got into sort of falling into various rabbit holes of just watching loads and loads of his stuff. Please don't miss that... um uh, what's it called? Wisdom School with Aaron Chen uh, on Adult Swim, which you can watch on YouTube. The link is in the show notes. You can follow him, Aaron Chen, but with a three uh, in Chen on Twitter or Chenny Lifestyle at IG. And that every time I see a, a lovely, quirky Instagram handle, I always think of Sunil Patel's uh, at Sunil Patel Solutions. <laughs> it just makes me laugh every time I think of it. And um, so why not follow both of them on Instagram? But um Yes, you can join the Insiders Club, as you know, at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Um, but there's nothing much else to talk about. A couple of exciting projects to, or a couple of exciting, not projects, but perspectives on existing projects to talk to you about in the postamble. Um, but for now, let's, let's get back to this. Let's, let's get back to Aaron Chen, he said slightly more professionally. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What joke, like joke, joke, one-liner or a longer bit, are you most proud of? Which do you, in fact, more specifically, which one do you think, like, that's me, that's my sense of humour, that's what I do? Um, I think the one-liner is, uh, I have one where the, I won't tell the whole thing, but, or maybe I can, I don't know. Um, but it's about, uh. A guy who bumps into me, a tough guy. I knew it! I knew it! I almost, I almost guessed. I knew, I've got it written down at the top of my list, the underestimate one. Can, yeah. Give us, give us the whole bit. It's such a good joke, man. Oh, thank you. Um, so I got to remember, I haven't performed stand up in like four months. So, uh, it's, uh, I like to hang out in the party areas of Sydney, but they get real gross on a Friday, Saturday night, get packed full of people who are heaps drunk, but also work out way too much. Um, and that's like a Venn diagram of things that I'm scared of. Uh, I was walking down the main strip one Friday night and one of these guys, he bumps into me, but he thought that I bumped into him. So he looks down at me and he's like, mate, do you want to fight? Don't underestimate me. And I'm like, I think you underestimate my ability to estimate. <laughs> and I it's thought of just that perfect. playing soccer. Like I was just playing soccer and that, that came to me like there was, maybe I was intimidated by people but that didn't happen for sure yeah <laughs> and there is something about it's such a perfect joke and it, it it asks quite a lot of an audience like there's quite a lot of pauses you need in that I've seen you kind of perform that mm-hmm. online and 
like you need to bring them with you because like I think you underestimate my ability to estimate. It's like mm-hmm. I get it. I've got quite you know we've got quick comedy brains, but yeah. I can feel. Do, did you when you delivered it? Did you need to sort of find the the rhythm, the pace of it that would let everyone catch up with? The meaning of it. It's one of those ones you go, hang on, what is that? Hang on. Oh, fuck, that's good. Do you know what I mean? It's like <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, a, there's more of a kind of a delayed reaction. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think that that was like, sometimes I'll have a hot one, which I know that it will be okay and it will work. And I think somehow that did work in that moment. I think maybe like the timing would have been the same the first time I did it to like now type of thing. Like Okay, okay. Very rarely does that happen, but I think that's one time where it happened, and maybe that's why I like it so much because reliable. And with that, with that joke, just to nerd out on that joke for a mm-hmm. minute, the the build up that it requires of like going out in Sydney and a guy yeah. coming along and all those kind of things. Does it always need that? Have you always told it with that rather than you know you might think that one of the you know there's that one of the rules if you like uh, probably erroneously one of the rules of writing short jokes is mm-hmm. to eliminate all the extraneous words. Cut the fat. But then you've yeah, exactly. But then, yeah. and it's not like there's fat on that joke, but you might yeah. think that kind of that setup, that's what I mean, that kind of Hedberg influence. It's really kind of characterful. The thing about the Venn diagram and stuff is a little mini joke on the way, yeah. but it, it's characterful. There is a real pleasure in the audience of watching you get to the point mm-hmm. rather than that hunger of just like trim it all down, just do the funny bit onto the next one. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like this, your rhythm is so, it's so watchable. Thank you. I yeah, I, I have no idea. Like, I reckon for sure there's a shorter one-liner in it, but like, it's something that I'm almost too scared to try because I'm so set in that massive story that yeah, I don't know. But maybe I should give it a go. See how. No, it I mean, is. I'm, I'm absolutely not saying lose the words. I'm just I'm interested in the fact that like because be because what what you seem to do is like yes, you understand the mechanics, you understand the formula of the jokes, mm-hmm. but also you don't you're not beholden to it i guess is the point i'm making yeah i love discovering and trying something new like seeing a comic do something really well and seeing if there's anything to that like i forget who i got it from but um there was a period where i really loved repetition so i tried to do a lot of repetition maybe it was watching stuart lee or something like that and seeing how much repetition he used and seeing if I could pull anything like that off. And so there was a moment in time where I wrote jokes with a lot of repetition in it or something like that. So the the style would change and develop over time. And then um, I think eventually you just don't think about it. Like you have all the different tools in your toolbox or whatever, and you try to apply everyone to different jokes and build um, jokes in different ways and whatnot. What are your what are your go-to tools? For sure the one-liner stuff never left me. It's like if if I'm writing out a thing, a story or whatever and it's feeling clunky, it's like I know that there's always like a one-liner in every story. Like if it if you can't explain it in a one-liner, I feel like then it's can't it can't be funny to me like for me. But um repetition sometimes, but I think a shift of uh, low, high status to low status, like that kind of thing. Um, but nowadays when I write longer jokes, it's like I'll have to have a lot of different jokes in there. Like I I get scared when I go like a minute or two with silence. Yeah, okay. So, 
I'll build a longer story out of different one-liners and try to insert little jokes everywhere if I'm doing a story. I love that idea that if a story can't be expressed in a one-liner, then it isn't funny. Yeah, like you <laughs> haven't got it. So yeah. um, we can get rid of this if it goes nowhere. But with that, that um, the elderly Chinese lady on the plane trying to get you to you know, smuggle the money yeah. for her... Like, so what would you, if you had to reduce that story, which is great and full of jokes, like, what's the heart of that story? What's the one-liner at the heart of that story in your mind? I think I remember... that. That's an interesting one because, like, I remember that was a story that, like, I wrote out. Like, normally it just, like, a, a joke comes pretty fully formed in my head. But that was one where it's like, I have this story, can I write it into something and I wrote it into this thing and I had to try it a few times to get it to work. Um, but I think the one-liner in that... I, I I couldn't say off the top of my head and because I had to stop doing that joke after the gala, so I did it for, like... I wrote it, like, two months before the gala and did it at the gala and then I couldn't do it at my shows because everyone knew that going into the show. So it's not okay. fresh for me, but... Um, I think just the woman asking me to take money into the country for her coming from me helping her, like, fill in a form. I think that's kind of where the joke somewhere is. Or, or it's, the other it's, jokes a, in the, it's yeah. the fact of you doing it. I think that's to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not, I don't mean to disagree yeah. with you, but it's the fact of like what the, what the story is, what that story is really about is you respect your elders. <laughs> do you yeah. know what I mean? So even when they ask you to do something illegal, yeah. like that's the that's the thing. And again, it's just full of character because when you do that kind of pull back and reveal at the end of, so I'm in, you know, so I'm filling in the form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like having been explicitly told not to. It's just, yeah. it's really built into that kind of, um, uh, that idea of <laughs> respecting your elders. And man, it's such, it's such a great bit. Um, Thank you. I was going to ask something else. You so you so you said you couldn't do it at, at your shows because people are seeing it on the gala. Now I'm interested in that because I have that same feeling. Once it's on TV, it's burnt. Yeah. But espe- and especially at Melbourne because everybody watches that and decides what to see as a result of it. But mm-hmm. also, there's an element of, I mean, I as an audience member would be coming to your show hoping you did that bit. Yeah. So do you yeah, does it does maybe. it trip does it trip you up as a performer to think oh they know this so I can't do it does that like change what's good about the experience of doing it for you yeah or is it like you feel if they're ahead of you then you can't you can't look them in the eye and be as naive as you as yeah, you I, as you would play in that bit I feel like part of the whole fun is that you're tricking people like you're like have all these things that they don't know that you're about to say and you you know so like I think the moment came where that bit would have been like a rocket and then after everyone knew it like it was like kind of a middle response which was like it's just too it's too hard to do you know that's too painful as well if you've had something that's a rocket and it's not a rocket anymore why would you do half a rocket yeah right okay (laughs) and it's just embarrassing it's like i i'm saying words that you know like you know what's coming it feels embarrassing to me so conversely can you Mm -hmm. talk to me about a joke that like that you didn't work that, that didn't work that you had loads of belief in and that you can just never make work do you have um, anything like that? Have you got anything kind of in your back pocket? You're like, one day that's going to work, but not yet. There's for sure stuff like that. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. 
that's like that, but anything I try to do, anything vaguely political, it, I think it just doesn't make sense coming out of my character and stuff, and it's like, oh, I think that's going to be funny, and it's never, it's never good, um, but apart from that, like, there's always bits where you think, oh, that could be something, um, but it just never is, like, you try it, and it doesn't yeah, work. Yeah, it's interesting. I can't imagine you doing political stuff, and I think it's because your nature is too deferent. Like, yeah. You would you wouldn't have a rebellious opinion on something, no. even if even if you the person does. Because mm-hmm. I, I think of the stuff your dad features in your act a lot. Yeah, and like the um the fact I know your your mother died when you were five. Yeah, so your your dad brought you up, and so mm-hmm. and because the fact because your dad doesn't speak English, like that is such a kind of what I love is that you whenever you refer to him you never make fun of him for not speaking English. Like, you yeah. give him this kind of quiet humility, whereby, like in the Apple Crumble story, you know, and I know I should say to the frustrated listener who at this point is like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. I, I've only seen Aaron since 2015 on YouTube, so do some work yeah. and find it. But, you know, his his kind of humble attempt to create Apple Crumble from the description of a four-year-old who's never had yeah. it before. It's like, it's really respectful. Again, it's really deferent. You're like... He's done this thing. But the funny thing about it is your failure, not his. Yeah. Well, I think that's always a thing. Maybe I think that's exactly how I see him as like kind of like quiet type. Um, he knows what's going on in his world, but not like, but we have different kind of internal worlds. And um, it's funny when they come together and collide, like when I want something from preschool and he has no frame of reference for what that is. Um think that's what that is how much of your youth do you remember i mean what an awful thing to lose your mother when you're five i have a five-year-old and i'm sorry i feel very connected to that (laughs) like what a five-year-old is like Mm -hmm. but how much of it do you remember do you like were you old enough to have memories of that time like i remember her um in very brief memories and i have like random memories that I pull from my childhood and stuff like that apple crumbles memories um I guess really random um but so funny to me and something I hold on to um but all stuff like that I think I have a very general memory of things that went on in little stories and stuff like that but um I guess when you look back at that young and age it, memories they don't feel like for me, like, that you're experiencing them more like you're watching them as, like, a movie yeah. or it feels more like film or something like that. And were you, like... I try to think of a sensitive way to ask this, but, like, mm-hmm. I think if someone was 10 years old and they lost their mother, that yeah. would kind of send them off at the deep end. Were you were you young enough to be kind of insulated from from that, from it, like, massively affecting your life? Or did it massively affect your life? I think uh, it's, yeah, like, up until a certain point, I would have thought that it didn't affect my life at all. And then you kind of realise and put stuff together and you're like, oh, this had an effect on me in this way. But it's all kind of like hidden ways type thing. Like, I think in the culture as well, there's a lot of, like, suppression and stuff like that. And maybe that's where comedy comes from is, like, just deflecting and, like, not the surest way to not um, 
express like emotional vulnerability is to joke about it or what whatever so i think maybe partly that like i have a lot to thank for the trauma yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah i think i think it has effects but the full scope of it i'm yet to fully un unpack or whatever yeah. jimmy carr yeah. said that um when he he, because his mother died when he was younger, older than five. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, he says whenever he meets a comic, he always says, which parent was it that was sick? Because <laughs> he always, like, that's one of his kind of pet theories about comedians is that yeah. part of it is an attempt to fix things, to, sure. to either to cheer up a, a sick parent or a dying parent yeah. or to fix or to glue the family together. In my case, my parents are both still alive, but I definitely imposed a pressure on myself as a kid that I could make everything like it was all a bit awkward sometimes or arguments and stuff and I'd always be trying to get in there and fix stuff you think that's part of it for you is there an element of that I think for sure um and I kind of agree with Jimmy a little bit maybe I um (laughs) I, I I don't know what it kind of was but it was like I think maybe also in day-to-day life, it's just so awkward. If I think it felt awkward and embar- embarrassing to talk about that, like, or talk about, like, losing a parent or whatever, that you just find funny ways to avoid it or whatever. And I think diffusing a situation with humour is how I learnt to do that, I guess. Yeah. And mm-hmm. do you do you ever gig in Chinese? Do you ever write jokes in Chinese? I've never gigged in Chinese. I've done gigs in China. I went to a Mandarin-speaking open mic um, while I was in Shanghai, but I was so tempted to go up and just try to riff and stuff like that, but I didn't I didn't do it for some reason, I think. Um, but it, it would be so hard, I think. I think I wouldn't be funny at all in Mandarin. Why? Why is that? Why do you think that? I think... One, because I'm not good enough at the language, and two, it's like I, I'm not around the comedy enough or humor enough to be able to joke easily in Mandarin. Like, I don't get laughs off my Chinese-speaking relatives that much. Um, only when I'm being really cheeky and stupid and stuff like that. But I don't think that that translates to on-stage comedy. At all. <laughs> yeah, cheeky and stupid is not really, they're not really qualities I associate with your act. But that's interesting, isn't it? Like, particularly for someone who is so uh, one-liner based, or has been certainly a lot of the stuff I've seen, that it's, it's, so, it's so subtle and it's to do with word choice right. and inflection, as well as the kind of the big, you're really good on the big nuts and bolts of why, like the internal workings of why a situation is funny. Um but just to look at that through the idea of can it be translated? Like, can one of your jokes be translated to another language? Or would that necessarily kill, like, the personality elements of it? Yeah, I just, like, don't even have the vocabulary to translate. But even then, I think it wouldn't really make sense. I guess that story about the Chinese lady was translated into subtitles and that was popular so it must have some sort of comedy resonance or anthropological at least um but i have no idea if i like i think my personality for sure shifts when i um speak mandarin like 
I was doing Vox Pops one time, I think maybe for uh, this adult swim thing I did, and I was on the street, and we bumped into Chinese people, and the director was like, oh, do you want to speak to them in Mandarin? And I spoke to them in Mandarin, and he was like, yeah, we can't use any of that. Like, you totally (laughs) dropped your character or whatever to speak to them in Mandarin. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, jeez. Um. Let's talk about those because I didn't know yeah. about those. This is one of my things coming to you. So, like, I saw you how many years ago? It was seven years, six, seven years ago, mm-hmm. and really blew my mind. And since then, because I haven't been back over to Australia, in the back of my mind, I've been like, oh, I wonder what Aaron's doing. Is he still doing crazy little kind of, you know, him and his mate doing kind of odd stuff? And then I'd see a gala thing and go, holy shit, it's got half a million views. And then in the meantime, yeah. I'm like, oh, like I discovered yesterday or two days ago that you're on Adult Swim. And I watched yeah. that. What's it called? Is it Wisdom School? Yeah. It's so good, man. It's so good. I was crying laughing watching it. And also, to some level, a bit disappointed. I was like, oh, apparently Aaron's famous now. He's not like my discovery anymore. <laughs> um, Thanks. But like, even what, what I love about that in, in the comments, everyone loves it. Yeah. Everyone in the comments. There's no one there going, no, this is bullshit. Everyone's like, fuck, he's the new Eric Andre. You know, that's... So talk yeah, to me about that, like... How, how, how did that happen and what was it like to film it and stuff because it like you really like it is it is reminiscent of Eric Andre in some ways but it's completely your own thing it's your personality doing it all the stuff of throwing the mic in the bin and you know running away from people just getting in the van and leaving all this kind of stuff just talk to me about the the experience of like how you got that and how much of it came from you and how much of it you were plugged into yeah um so i guess I was doing a Tonight Show early on in uh, like 2017 or something like that, uh, a show called John Conway Tonight, and I was kind of the sidekick, and one of my things was that I would do Vox Pops uh, or on-the-street interviews and stuff, and that was the first time I ever did that, and I found it was really that, fun. Sorry, was that before or after that? Um, was that the the football thing? Does you yeah. do some viral clip of you talking, like doing an awkward football interview? Where, where's that in the timeline? That was during, so I had done like a couple of episodes of that, but I remember during okay. the filming, like the writing of that TV show one week, I was with a friend and he was like, um, turned to, he was a producer and he turned to me and he was like, do you know any comedians in Sydney or Australia who like football? And I was named a few people and I was like, I like football. And so I didn't know, but my name ended up on a list of comedians and they picked me to do the halftime interview at like a Sydney FC versus Liverpool FC exhibition match. And okay. uh, so that was all during. So at that time I was like fully in the world of street interviews and like Vox Pops and stuff like that. And um, I had a lot of fun doing that and that show ended and there was kind of not much like I'd, do a Vox Pop here and there for a different like publication or TV show every now and then, but like not consistently anywhere. And then and and the and the style that you were doing was the was your style Vox Pops like deliberately awkward, asking kind of irrelevant questions that appeared to be relevant, really yeah. throwing people. Do you know what I mean? People like Acting benevolent, really like you. Yeah, you were kind of yeah. it, like what's nice about it is it is kind of benevolent. You're not you're not making fun of the person. So much like you put yourself in as much jeopardy as they're in. Yeah, uh, for sure. I I I just feel bad when I know that 
I'm making fun of someone. Like, I don't really want to make fun of someone, but to have a moment which is like create a moment which is like so ridiculous that like the jokes on no one except maybe me or just the situation. Um, yes. And uh, yeah, so I wanted to do more and more of that and. I was talking to adults and they were like, did you have any ideas for anything? And I thought that I wanted to do more of those, but I thought that no one was really doing, like people were doing a lot of different Vox Pops, but no one was like trying to experiment with Vox Pops or street interviews. I guess Eric Andre would be the one, but um, like, it's like, how could you do it in different ways and how could you create new microphones and stuff like that? And I was always like hanging out with, Sam Campbell um, and Henry Stone and Sam Campbell's always like creating new things and like building microphones out of weird hats and stuff and it's like <laughs> that's kind of who I was surrounded by at that time and yeah I wanted to do something like that. So did Adult Swim kind of give you, you pitched it and said I want to do this kind of thing did they then pair you up with someone to devise it or did you go in and say this is, this is the, these are all the things I'm going to do? Did, did you? To what extent did you kind of produce it and go right? I'm going to do a thing about whispering. I'm going to do a thing with a long mic, or did you <laughs> yeah. kind of were you collaborating with it? So I think um, they they were just commissioning. They've always been commissioning these infomercials, which are like ten minute concept um, films type thing. And I knew that I was. I think maybe I knew I was going to them to pitch stuff and. Uh, I was working on that with my friend Henry Stone, who used to do stand-up, but now is like totally a film director and stuff and writer. Um, and we, uh, yeah, we kind of. I, I came to him and I was like, I want to do a thing about um, vox pops and being a, being good at them, maybe, or like experimenting and doing different sketches with them. And he g'd up that idea and added so much to it and was um came up with the idea of doing like a master class for that and that was what they bid on and they're like yeah we see a master class it's so <laughs> good did you just do the one is that wisdom school that half hour piece or whatever it is 20 minutes is yeah that, yeah that's the one that's the and one how long how long ago was that we shot that at this the maybe the end of our first lockdown here kind of in the middle of the pandemic type of thing. So maybe okay, okay. 2020, June or something. So recent enough that there's the possibility for more? Did you get the feeling it went down well? It seems to have gone down great on, on the YouTube clip I saw. It's gone It's gone down good. Um, they seem positive, I think. Yeah, I don't know. So when you are in the moment of doing the Vox Pops and kind of in jeopardy with the person, like you've got an idea for what the game of it is, whether you're asking them to whisper or whether <laughs> you're asking them to, um, you know, you're just kind of like, you're like, there's a lovely one where you're asking them what the interview's about. <laughs> yeah, do you yeah. know what I mean? Like those, those stuff, they're so great. How many, oh, well, first question, how many of them do you have to do to get like the one that that is to your satisfaction for the, for the bit to work in? And, and you know, in say... 30 seconds of tape how many have you got to be doing those all morning to get those right ones or it is a case of this game works do it a few times let's have that one yeah i think say like we shot way too many and i i don't know if that was good or bad but i remember we shot like uh 
maybe like because Henry never shot box pops that much. I think all our camera people they weren't really from that background. Maybe one was, and I had only done like a handful in my lifetime. So we didn't know like what the protocol was. So we shot like eight hour days for five days to get like seven minutes of on screen box pops, which is so many. That's crazy. So many interviews. I reckon we would have done hundreds, hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of people. Did you, did you feel yourself like, you say you don't know if that's a good idea. Did you feel yourself get better at it? Did you feel yourself get worse at it? Because there's less ambiguity because you know how it goes. Yeah, like I feel like it depends. Sometimes it's like, oh, it was worth sticking around just for that. And sometimes by the end of it, we were like, we got to shorten the amount of time we're out there because we got so angry at each other in the bus. And like, um, <laughs> it's just so soul crushing, like talking to the 10th person in a row who's just, like, not wanting to talk to you or just completely nothing, mm. like, not wanting to play or whatever. Yeah. And when you find the right person, and what does mm. what makes the right person? Like, you, someone wanting to play, someone who kind of, like, how much do they, how much does the right person get that you're being stupid? Do they Do they slightly get it? Is it about ambiguity? Is it about, like, what makes them the right person? I think the perfect person is someone who is kind of in the middle of the interview realising something is weird. Yeah, I think okay. that's perfect. Like, if they, at the start, are completely thinking that I'm a journalist, that's perfect. And then halfway through kind of being a bit sceptical about everything and, like, that's kind of cracking or whatever. And that's where the fun is because then you kind of push more moments of being a journalist and like trying to convince them again that you're like a real thing and then to push it more and to see how far you can push it through that and are you when you're in the moment of doing that when you're trying to push them are you activating those parts of your comedy mind that understand I don't know, not joke structure exactly, but you're mm-hmm. you're presumably you're, you're taking advantage of like the way you do it, it's, you're so good at it and the way you do it is like you're pushing them into places where you think you can get more sort of elasticity or more sort of tension involved. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Is there like this sort of you you must be building up kind of instincts where you're like, oh, this could go wronger. Do you know what I mean? Like in, a, in almost in a clown way, like this is going yeah. wrong. I wonder how I could make it go wronger. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think there's that and there's like also... Just if you've done enough crowd work, you can know how to push people's buttons in a certain way. I think the most comedy, like, joke-joke moment was at the very start of the clip, there's an interview I did with a guy at the beach, like a really beachy-looking guy, and I asked him how many times he comes to the beach every every (laughs) day, and he says, I come almost every day. Oh, like once a day or something like that. And I say, so you're not that into it. And then he says, I come almost every day. Like, it gets him angry enough, but he's still in the game or whatever. Totally. I think that's the the most joke, joke thing that I did. (laughs) But the rest of it is just coming up with a joke that you know could, could be funny, like a premise and then bringing it out and seeing what happens. 
that must be it must be really satisfying when you get mm. one when you like run and get in the van <laughs> you know what I mean? and kind of yeah, ditch yeah. it that must be great Mm-hmm. Um, so what are you are you you say you're not gigged for four months obviously you're in you're in another lockdown now or just about to yes. come out of another lockdown about to come how out. have you how have you found that how has the whole pandemic been on your mental health how are you coping are you living on your own are you with people I'm living with housemates um, it's actually been really nice like I, I really appreciate resting and taking a break from things and uh, getting into slower life things like cooking and stuff like that I, I love that so I've appreciated the rest and I'm happy to get back out there as well and are you because I know there's no or the, the circuit the comp, you know the, the club mm-hmm. circuit in Australia is very mm-hmm. different to over here even without kind of rolling the pandemic into it are you surviving from making TV are you surviving from working in clubs I think I still make most of my income at the festival um, and then I, I'm so out of practice talking to Australian acts. I forget how big a part of the financial year the festival is. Yeah, the what kind like of almost? You got to you got to make all your money in five weeks and then get out of town. That's like basically. Yeah, for the for for what I'm in, I think that that's what it is for me. And then I do get chunks of change from um, doing TV and stuff like that. And then the clubs is um, good good as well. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, I think the clubs is what I'm doing most of the time and I'm trying to gig heaps cause I know that I got to have material by the festivals. Yeah. So the last festival, the last festival was canceled like at the last minute. No, yeah. Uh, the one before that, like the, the first okay. festival of the pandemic, but then they held one last year, 2020. Okay, okay. Because mm-hmm. was that so? The two thousand eleven or twenty twenty one? Sorry, twenty twenty got cancelled. I just said two thousand eleven. Yeah, twenty twenty got cancelled. So twenty twenty one went ahead. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I thought that one had gone as well. Jeez, that must be that's such a killer to have a whole thing. You know, given the reliance, given the financial reliance on the festival, yeah. to have an entire one get swallowed up. But the first lockdown, it was great because the government like did like this stimulus package, and most comedians were just getting money from the government and being at home and being like the richest they've ever been. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What's your favourite joke of another comic? What's your, in fact, two different ones. What's your favourite, because you've got a good mind for jokes. What's your favourite joke of a famous comic and what's your favourite joke of a lesser known comic, one of your friends? Yeah. That's so tough. Um, there is no, there's no jeopardy attached to this. I, it could just be a joke you like. <laughs> we don't need to load it with like this has to be the best one. Yeah, I was thinking, I was thinking of uh, the other day. I thought about uh, um, this joke that I always think about. It's a Sam Simmons joke about going into like, do you have two dollars stores type thing in um, yeah in the UK everything, where they sell everything, everything's a pound. Everything's a yeah, and sometimes they yeah, have yeah. really random things. Mm-hmm. He has this joke about going into one of these um, stores and then finding the like most specific random thing that they have. And in this case, it was like this thermometer that came out of this um, scene where there was a deer on a mountain and there's a thermometer sticking out of it. And he'll come back the next day and talk to the clerk and say, 
hey, do you guys happen to have like a thing which is like a thermometer sticking out of a hill? There's a deer there. And they'll get so excited because it's like they have the exact thing and they go up and they find the thing. And then Sam goes, yeah, it's kind of like that. <laughs> I think there's something about that which makes me laugh so much. That's beautiful. Um, in terms of local, like, lesser-known guys, uh, I think this guy in Sydney called John Crookshank, um, he has so many, like, is, I think, one of the funniest guys and should be so much more known, and all his jokes are, like, I could I could nab. He's so funny. Excellent. I'm going to look up John, John Crookshank. Okay. Yeah. Um. If you had one ability which got you to your current level of success, besides your comic ability, mm-hmm. what is it? <laughs> what does that mean? Like, if I had... Well, like, like is, it, is it, like, tenacity? Is it some comics, it's their ability to kick down doors and go, hey, you've got to pay attention to me. Right. Like, as as well as their comic ability. What, what's yours? I what's think your, it's... What's, like, um, what's, like, the secondary weapon that you've got? It's, it's not offending anyone too much. <laughs> 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 um... How do you cope with a bad gig? Does it, um, does it does it send you into a dark place for days at a time, or are you confident enough that the next one will be good? I don't. I try. I try not to spiral anymore. I used to for sure, but now I think um, I just try to gig again and know that there's better gigs in the future. How did you stop? spiraling that's great to hear i used to do this thing where i'd get kind of into a spiral <laughs> yeah. of whatever, spiral? whatever the spiral is self i uh, no, not anything like as much as i used to i used yeah. to all the time constantly it was there with sure. gary, gary goldwyn was on the show he talked about how every gig became a referendum on his self-worth and that's <laughs> do you know what i mean like that's fucking i mean that's yeah. put about as well as you'd expect from gary goldwyn mm-hmm. um so i have certainly been in that place before where i'm like I really need not this has to work, but I really need this to work. And then right. if it didn't, I'd be like, I just would feel wretched. I would feel like this is proof that I'm a piece of shit because <laughs> do you know what I mean? That that kind of place. Yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty familiar with that sort of place. Was that where you were at? Were you in that kind of what was your spiral like? Yeah, I think um definitely that or just being like, Oh, I'm the worst comedian. But I think now my mental health is generally better and I just don't mull over things. Too much, too much. Hopefully, um, yeah, it's been good. It's how did you? How did you? How did you get to that point? For people who are still <laughs> spiraling, is it therapy? Is it self help? Is it? What, I think it's know, a bit the... of therapy, but also like I used to w- just wake up at eleven a.m. every day and not do anything, smoke heaps of cigarettes and stuff like that. But I think um, just waking up the same time every day helped a lot. It's <laughs> a good. That's a good answer. Um, what great idea did and I know from your experimental things maybe there'll be a good answer to this None, all, the, all of these are just quickies if you've got nothing we'll move on what great idea did you try once and then never try again what great idea like a comedy idea yeah comedy idea that you were like right I'm going to do this and you did it once and you thought I'm never doing that again <laughs> there was a thing that I was doing for a while but uh, like a little while, I mean, but it was it became too much of a thing and a bit too embarrassing, which was I used to say that I was doing musical comedy and I was doing a song called 
my social anxiety prevents me from displaying my true talents and I would um, sing really awkwardly and silently for like a minute or so, but it was just, it's too much. If it was bombed, it really bombed. <laughs> <laughs> what's uh, what's your worst bomb? Like how, like, think, what do you regard as your worst gig and why? Um, whew. I would say a lot of my worst bombs are at, alternative comedy rooms where um like i feel like it's 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 against me because it's like i'd rather be the weird person at a comedy club than the normal person at an alternative room so i like overcompensate and i try to be like edgy or too alternative or like not do jokes and people are just like they look at you with such disdain when you're not funny and stuff like that. Um, but I've also done a lot of bad gigs in like Queensland and stuff where one one audience member once, I was like bombing so much that um, he bought a shot of Sam Booker up to the stage and was like, drink that, mate. And I didn't, uh, I can't drink because it makes me really red and um, alcohol's like, I get I got a bit of alcohol intolerance. So I poured it over my head and I had to perform for 15 minutes with like Sam Booker in my eyes. It was really bad. <laughs> and from that, we could learn. Never do what you're told by a member of the audience. No. Um, who is the new comic? Who is the new comic who asked you for advice who then went on to be the biggest? Um, oh. No one really asked me for advice, really. The last person was someone... Uh, sometimes people will call me and ask me about specific TV shows and how to do them and the last person who did that was called Emma Holland and now she's been on that TV show twice and I've only been on it once (laughs) (laughs) how are you with that how are you with uh, like do you get envious do you ever suffer from kind of professional jealousy definitely not in that not in that case but some sometimes um, not jealousy but just like a I don't know. You look at people and you're like, "Damn." <laughs> I don't know. I yeah, maybe not. Um, not, not too. I never had it too badly. I think. Do you consider yourself to be successful? Uh, yeah, definitely in some regards, yes. I feel like it feels really arrogant to say yes, I'm successful, but it's also like arrogant or ungrateful to say no, you're not. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm, de- I'm deliberately trying to paralyze you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why, as someone who is successful, why aren't mm-hmm. you even more successful? Uh, I guess because of um, a lot of my prejudices that I tweet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm assuming that's a joke, but if that yeah, isn't yeah. a joke, what kind of prejudices are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether you're like tweeting a load of anti-TV producer stuff or something, but that's a lovely answer. Thanks, man. I think that's the lot. Are you happy? I'm really happy. That was so fun. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Thank Thanks you for so coming much. on. I appreciate it. It's 
great, isn't he? We That was so good. What I didn't do was at the beginning of the episode set you up for what we were going to talk about in the episode, but that's okay because I did. I think I said that thing about my brain melting out of my head, which is as much as of a goldsmith seal of approval as you can get these days. So that was Aaron. Thank you so much for him to coming on, and apologies if you call yourself Aaron, Aaron, and I've been calling you Aaron, or vice versa. So apologies for that. But you can follow him. Uh, he doesn't appear to have a website, which I find intriguing and cool and futuristic. But imagine, imagine still being a teenager and trying to strip all the hack off your act because you want to impress like alt people, like deep alt people like Nick Sun. Just imagine that as a creative pathway, like a way in. Oh my God. Can't wait to see what he does over the next 30 plus years. Um, Here's a, oh, I'll, I'll post Abel in a sec, but uh, thank you, Aaron. Uh, of course, the uh, editor and uploader of this show is uh, producer Nathan Wood. Also, uh, the Rob the, the Rob was by Music Smouten. Uh, the consultant was by Pod Dobbing. <laughs> and the the JK was by Logging Crossland. There we go. A clean sweep. Um, thanks all. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for uh, either joining the Insiders Club or supporting the show in other ways by, for example, leaving uh, a lovely glittering, glistening review on uh, Apple Podcasts in whatever country you're in, especially if you're outside of the UK. Because I didn't realise uh, for a long time that although I've got Bundles of very lovely and uh, very much appreciated uh, Apple podcasts or iTunes reviews, as we used to call them 10 years ago. Um, uh, in the UK, those things, like if I'm trying to convince someone to, who's in America to be on the show, you look at the iTunes thing in America, you're like, oh, no one's heard of this. <laughs> so any any of the usual sort of share. I mean, that was the first five years of podcasting, wasn't it? Share this, do this, tell everyone, tell all your friends, please support, support, support. And then I really took my foot off the gas with that, deciding to hone on instead in the niche audience that I now have, which consists of you, you alone. <laughs> it's all you. It's just you, I'm afraid. So you've got to do all of it. Um, or we can just... I mean, you know, just why don't you take your foot off the gas as well and we'll just keep it private. That's it's effectively a private podcast. It's not the private podcast for the people who pay, but it's pretty private these days. And uh, I quite like that. So um, that's all of that. That concludes the episode proper next week. Not Pierre. I've got an absolutely fantastic episode with Pierre Novelli. I'm talking to uh, Philippa Perry tomorrow for a non-com pod, a non-comedians podcast. Um and uh, I'm really excited uh, about that. And then we've got some... Uh, this concludes the episode, but I'll I'll segue straight into the post-amble in a second. Bye for now. You're still here. Good. So, um... Uh, yes, with Philippa Perry on the show, that's quite interesting. Oh, but yes, what I, what I was going to say is, I think, and it sort of seems mad to be considering this when you're a few months shy of 10 years, um, and indeed a few episodes shy, what, 15 episodes shy of episode 400? Maybe I should just knock out another 15 one-on-one interviews I, I, just to get us to the 400 point and then diversify slightly. I've been thinking of other things to do with the feed and other things. I'm I'm not, and let's be absolutely clear about this, I'm not bored of talking to comedians, but I am bored of all the anxiety I feel when prepping for an interview and and panicking about who to speak to and how to make sure that the that the the roster of acts represents the circuit as it should be diversity wise rather than as it necessarily is and um well not panicking but you know putting a lot of sort of time and effort and thought into organizing it all and and finding that sometimes that makes me very anxious and I sort of end up anyway I'm not going to go into detail but it's it's clear if you know me and you do um that 
I would like to sort of try some different things. Now, one of the things is that we did for the Insiders Club, you'll know we had these lovely insider in, insider only Zooms. Now, you might know, you might know, I'll have mentioned them, but maybe you've not heard one. There is one, you can get the video, actually, the, the video from you can get the video for free of the James Acaster one if you sign up to the mailing list, if you're a new subscriber, which you can do at stuartgoldsmith.com at the bottom of the page. Um, then you can uh, see the video example, which is a really fun one. There's a bunch of people who've seen that now. And please, if you are going to do that, remember, friends don't rip and upload friends stuff to various Acaster stand sites, all right? Um, but my point is, I could do more of them. I really enjoy them. And there is no anxiety debt to me. I don't freak out about them. I'm excited. So what we do is we get a bunch of Insiders Club members into a Zoom room with me and a guest. And then I sort of mediate and facilitate a group interview of that person. So you get to ask your favourite comics the questions that you want to ask them. Also, Neil, wonderful Neil in the Insiders Club, suggested only a few moments ago that... um, uh, that one one of the things we could do is, and I've thought about this a little while already, but kind of get pairs of comedians. He suggested Suze Kempner and Robin Ince. Why not? Just off the top of his head, why not? It's, I mean, they're different from one another in an exciting way. You could go mega different from each other. You could get one liner comic and uh, a big storytelling comic to talk about the differences and similarities between what they do. We could get uh, we could get an uh, an exciting newbie and a jaded old dinosaur <laughs> what did i call <laughs> what did i call um mike wilmot always loves the fact that i brought him on once in a gig as a as a what did i call him it wasn't a dinosaur it was like an aging war horse <laughs> he loved that and he won't let me forget it um so we could do all sorts of things like that so what i might do rather than make those insider only content the rule might be that the insiders get to be present in the room so if you want to be in the room and asking questions and sort of privy to it and part of it then that's for the Insiders Club, but the audio goes on the feed and that might freshen up the feed. We could have some sort of roundtable episodes um, so that it's kind of like serious interview roundtable, serious interview roundtable, or do a, you know, I could do a roundtable season. I could do a fun festival season of roundtables and basically claw back some anxiety-free time for me to do things like write jokes <laughs> and uh, work on growing my speaking business and the other sort of things I'm doing. So basically, there are some interesting changes. Uh, not not changes. It's not going to change change. But there are some interesting other things that I could be doing with this feed. So if you've made it this far, if you a a if you downloaded the Aaron Chen episode, I consider that you are your hardcore. Even if you're not in the Insiders Club, Aaron isn't famous in the UK particularly, as far as I'm aware. So. If you've made it this far, then you heard me get excited in the first few minutes and thought, oh, I'm into this, even though I've not necessarily heard of this person. If you're in Australia and Erin is famous to you, then uh, you also can count for the purposes of this very wobbly Venn diagram. Um, so so I put it to you. Feel free to get in touch. I am Stuart at ComediansComedian.com. Info at still reaches me, but I'm trying to phase it out because it, it looks really spammy, it turns out, in people's inboxes. Stuart at ComediansComedian.com. Um, give me a shout. And uh, let me know what you think of that idea and whether you'd like to suggest any sort of tweaks to it or, or particular matchups of guests or uh, or what have you. We're not look. It would be easy to program salacious dogfight guest mismatches. Right. That's not what we're about. That's not the nature of this show. Other people could do that. Um, what we'd like to do is interesting things that we think we can learn from and that uh, will be uh sort of educational and inspiring and as i build out what it is is 
I want to build out the podcast into, and I'm twiddling my virtual moustache as I say this, into an, e- an ecosystem. Mm, yes, an ecosystem. Someone said to me about this, the, the business speaky stuff. My friend Ben said, I did a, a, a session for his uh, software company, the software company for, for whom he works in a, in a position. And um, uh, I was asking him for some sort of feedback on it, like mate to mate. Uh, and he said, oh, it's, it's it's great. The only thing I'd say is it's not just a talk. It's an ecosystem. And ever since then, I've been trying to look at everything I do and go, is this an ecosystem? Could it be an ecosystem? What the fuck is an ecosystem? So I suppose um, I've got giddy in the past about building out the um, the insiders feed. You know, we did kind of, we did uh, whatever it was called years ago. We did um, comedy critique. That was an interesting sort of project. That was good. It, it, with the insiders feed, this, this, the, the numbers are limited such that that became, you know, that paused. I ended up pausing that because it became a huge administrative effort for for a small number of people to really enjoy it. But we've got loads of people, thousands and thousands of people listening on the main feed on this one to which you're currently listening. So sort of anything is worth trying on that one. So what we're wanting to do is build out the ComComPod ecosystem. And um, this is normally the sort of thing I'd talk to the insiders about first. There's a sort of parallel conversation going on. We might talk about it in the, the ComCom Facebook group a bit. Um, yeah, let's do that. I'll put a post in it when this episode goes out. Um, or if, I, if you can't find one, start one. Uh, but not 30 of you at once, please. Um, and so, yes, so this is the sort of thing I'd normally put in those systems, this conversation, let's start having this conversation. Um, but also, I'm also uh, sneaking it in in the postamble of a brilliant but lesser known in the UK comic as a sort of Easter egg. So you're the hardcore, you've you've uh, you've got this far in the, the whiffle. Um, next week, there is going to be what I think I'm going to call a panamble. <laughs> Thank you very much to the person in the, the Facebook group who who suggested that. John Larkin. Thank you, John Larkin. Uh, pure amble is nice. Peri- <laughs> periamble. Omnamble. Uh, polyamble. Um, uh, postamble ensemble. Ambledextrous. Uberamble. An uberamble. That's good as well. Well done, Mike Keenan. That's good. Totem Amble, says Stewie Buchanan, if you want to be all fancy in Latin. Hard to tell there, Stewie, whether you uh, know any Latin. <laughs> a panamble. I think it is a panamble, isn't it? Only ams. Well done, Leaky. That's good. Um, ample Amble, some Amble, solo Amble, an Amble Gamble. A, r- a ramble. I like that one. And the German word for it is Weltenschamble, but I don't know if that's true. I'm going to Google that now, Christian, and we'll see if that works. No, Weltenschamble. Oh, we, oh, we see as Velten... Oh, I see. Weltenschauung is a particular philosophy or view of life, the worldview. So is Velten means v- world, is it? So like a world amble. I think I'm going panamble for now. Anyway, Christ, this is, I mean, you're still there. If you're still there, you are the hardcore. Next week's episode, I'm going on holiday. So now I'm going to record a panamble. So that the whole episode will just be me banging on um, about the sense of belonging. Yeah, I've committed to it now by putting on this episode. I'm going to record that now. All right. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.